Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Times Square and Central Park are the two biggest tourist destinations in the United States. Visitors who come to the city, eager to take in the sights and sounds, will also inevitably notice a certain disparity around them. Luxury apartments are going up everywhere, while a growing homeless population exists below. I live in the city, and I see homeless people every day. I think about where they sleep at night, especially in the winter. My guest today, Mary Brosnahan, knows where many of the homeless sleep. We have known each other for years. Brosnahan is the president and chief executive of the Coalition for the Homeless, the nation's oldest organization helping homeless people and their families. Brosnahan cares about the people she serves, but she didn't come to the job through social work. She actually studied communications at Notre Dame. I wanted to be a director, actually. <laughs> you know, it's just, it was the most exciting, interesting thing I could imagine was I love film. And I did pre-med for three years and, you know, I had very good grade point average. And I remember having to tell my dad that I wanted to switch to communications and going to see the dean because you had to switch colleges. And uh, he looked at my transcript and said, okay, I know you're breaking someone's heart. And it took my dad about a week. At first, he was like, you're going to be bagging groceries at Kroger. You know, <laughs> um, I went through the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because they're practical, right? They, my dad was born in 27. They didn't my want My dad was kid. born in 27. <laughs> And I believe my father was also someone who did not follow his own dreams. Well, exactly. So he, was very, uh, he was very open-minded about that. Yeah. I think my father should have been a football coach or, or you know, done something like that that would have 
you know, fed his heart, so to speak. Um, but yeah, so it took him all of a week. And then, you know, he actually played football in a small college called St. Joe's in, in Indiana. So the fact that I was going to Notre Dame, I think, fulfilled some dream, right? It was this sort of Catholic, it's still just a tremendous place. But sure. anyway. Did you like it there? Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. There's, the the full-on college experience. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, but it was actually my mother had taken me to Belfast where her family was from, sort of the Catholic ghetto. Um, and I think— What did it, you see there? Oh, well, I was 16 and visiting my aunt, aunt and uncle, aunt, great aunt and uncle, and just remembering these moments, first day, like uh, jeeps with soldiers with machine guns getting out— under an overpass and thinking, you know, I'm a kid from the suburbs and uh, a soldier looking at me and saying, it's dry under here, just realizing, you know, and, and seeing just the, the huge gap in, in experience of kids my age growing up on either the Protestant or, in my case, the Catholic side of the Falls Road. And I think that that really politicized me in a way that, you know, sort of shock immersion. So then coming back sort of planted a seed that probably came up once I came to New York. Now, you finished at uh, Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Did you go there more than four years? Because you said you were pre-med. No, and that was the thing. I just, this dean saying, okay, um, you know, uh, embryology, that can be a philosophy requirement. (laughs) (laughs) They do Uh, work with you from time to time, don't they? Well, they do. They want you to stay. How much, yeah, how much. uh, You're a good student. They want to hold on to you. Right. Now, so you come to New York, and what did you do originally when you were here? Well. And and why did you come to New York? Why? Well, I thought I'd wind up in Chicago, because I'm such a rabid Bears fan, and, uh, um, but my dad actually had lung cancer and was getting treatment here in New York. And so coming to New York, my brother had lived here at the time and just, you know, walking around, this is the, still the epicenter of the universe as far as I'm concerned. Um, my dad died a few months later, but then— How old was he? Oh, well, he, he died in 83, so he was in his 50s. Yeah. Now, you, you want to something that's amazing? Well, my dad was born in 1927, and he died of lung cancer in 1983. Wow. Yep. And now that we're our age, we realize how young that was, right? It's, 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 I outlived my dad. Yeah. Mm. And, I, and I'm only 57 years old. Yeah. You worked somewhere else when you first I did. came here. The head of the film department actually introduced me to a woman who ran Universal Pictures publicity. So I, I got right in on the tail end of, you know, the old studio working at Universal Pictures on Park Avenue. And I just remember the first day sitting at my desk with my IBM Selectric and uh, Chevy Chase walks over and sits down on my on the corner of my uh, desk and orders lunch from the deli downstairs. And I thought, well, this is it. Here you, you know? are. Yeah, it was a great first job because here I'm, I didn't know how the subway was, subways worked. I didn't know, you know, uptown from downtown. So it was just a terrific first job to get to know New York and also meet very cool people. How many years did you do that? Just a few years. And the, you know how it works. The, she left and went to MGM, so I followed her, right? There are right. little packs that move around. And the last film I worked on was A Fish Called Wanda with John Cleese and— um, Kevin. Uh, just amazing, right? So I got right. out at the right time because then I—that was 88, so I did presidential advanced work. So it was— a, Dukakis. Yeah. 88. 88. 
Where were you? New York? Well, no, the, the great thing about advance is they throw you into a different town every three days. It really took sort of leaving and coming back for me to, you know, realize how out of control this, the homeless situation had so, become. So that's my question. Mm-hmm. So when the Dukakis, when Dukakis loses the, the election in 1988, you return to New York, mm-hmm. and this begins the path of you getting involved in coalition for the homeless? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I had this sort of almost spiritual awakening where I thought, let me try to do something with my life that would amount to something that would feed me, feed my soul. And... Um, I was going to work one morning at MGM, and the phone rings, and they said, can you be in Boston by noon? And I said, yes, Boston at noon, and then I was out in Montana that afternoon, suddenly swept up. And when I came back to New York again, that same, you're just completely depleted, but coming back and living in the East Village, there were like 60 guys living in that little triangle park by uh, Cooper Union, and working up the courage to talk to those guys and just realizing some of them are trying to get cleaned up to get day labor and others are, you know. Well, no, 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 let me just, you come to New York, you're involved in, in something uh, that I have every right to call, you know, this incredibly phony business that we're in, you know, mm-hmm. the, the movie business. And then New York becomes something else for you. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, probably my dad's influence on me. He was... Um, I used to joke with him when we would go to vote. I'd call him a yellow dog Democrat. But, you know, he was a card-carrying member of the UAW. And just talking politics and actually going out on the Dukakis campaign, because you're in a different city every three days, you meet the most incredible people, you know, union bus drivers and coal miners and waitresses. And, you know, for me, it was very stark, that split in the road that our nation was facing even back then between are we going to continue on the Reagan Dynasty, or are we going to actually get back to providing economic opportunity to people? Um, and so co- then coming you back to— You thought Reagan the, was a turning point? Well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody agrees on one side or the other. But I'm interested because ah, yours yeah. is such an informed opinion. I was wondering. Well, you know, you, and especially living in a place like Dearborn, right? I mean, you've seen the Michael Moore movies with Flint, but you see it. You know, I went to, um, you know, my family was on the wealthier side of town, but sort of not as homeowners sort of hanging on to that bottom rung. So my a lot of my classmates were uh, kids of auto executives. But even then, you could sort of see Bloomfield the— Bloomfield Hills. Uh, yeah, and you could see the unspooled as it were, of, you know, where are those kids going to wind up? And then other kids who were lucky to get a job at the Rouge factory. That to them, if they could put in 20 years. So uh, it really, you know, as you get older, things do crystallize more. And I, I think coming back to New York, I mean, what tremendous difference between being housed and homeless. I mean, it's like a precipice that people fall off. And my boyfriend at the time had actually followed this issue much more closely on a on a policy level. And he said, if you're serious, he wasn't sure if I was, you should go work at the coalition. Because even then, there was this sort of stratified industry that had arisen around homelessness in New York, right, with all the large nonprofits sort of getting huge contracts to provide shitty shelter and not really dedicated to ending the problem. Who was in charge of the city then? Well, that was the tail end of uh, Ed Koch in the beginning of Dave Dinkins. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, once we got into the Giuliani years, it was just full on. Now, when you look at that, how do you map what homelessness was and where it changes? What are the the big, strong marks yep. in terms of the narrow power. The, mm-hmm. What are the watersheds 
going back to well, after the war, let's say. Yeah, well, you, you just see the, you know, up until that mid-'70s point, you know, homelessness was largely confined in every major metropolitan area to the Bowery type of situations where you had people with mostly alcohol problems, right? And they, and and they were herded it, to that area. Exactly. The city and yeah. wanted to corral them there yeah. in a skid row. Yeah, and um, you had deinstitutionalization that was taking place across the nation. So large state-run institutions, which were hellholes that should be closed down. But the promise of deinstitutionalization was that all that money that was being misspent, you know, basically imprisoning people, was going to follow people into the community for some sort of housing-based model. And instead, and New York City is such a dark example of this, people would be typically discharged from uh, state psychiatric institutions, even if they only had a, a bottle of prescription pills and a few dollars, when their lease would run out or they would start acting out, they could literally walk around the corner and find another cheap place to go to. But at the end of the 70s, we lost well over 100,000 units of SRO housing. And suddenly— Why? Who was in charge when that happened? Well, that, just the market forces, you hmm. know. Um, it was People realized they could make a lot more money. Uh, I lived so in one ripping of those down. buildings. You did. And, it was an, and I knew it was an SRO. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but so when, when does it become a well, problem? Well, then it, it spilled out onto the streets. So 79 is significant, certainly in terms of uh, the coalition. Uh, Alan Baxter and Kim Hopper were young anthropologists out on the streets, and they wrote a brilliant report called Private Lives, Public Spaces. And then young lawyer Bob Hayes sued, and based on a clause in the state constitution to establish a right to shelter in New York City. And, um, you know, Ed Koch was such a great guy. We had to do it a second time for women and then a third time for kids. And in the process, you know, I think it was Hopper came up with the name Coalition for the Homeless. You call yourself Coalition for the Homeless, people are going to start showing up at your door saying, I need help. So then we started rolling out a whole series of uh, direct service programs. So describe for people who aren't familiar with it, what is the guarantee, the city's guarantee for shelter? Basically, if you or I were to become homeless tonight, uh, you could go to 30th Street Men's Shelter and you should be afforded a decent bed, a stable bed that's three feet apart from any other bed and clean linens and variety of services, you know. Showers. Yeah, exactly. Food. There's f- food, three meals a day. And, um, that, you know, that was pretty much all the coalition could um, actually And that facility navigate. is there right now. It's there now. It's a and, former, and, and how ironic, it's the old Bellevue Mental Hospital. So, and so when you go, And when you go there, it, it, it can house how many people? Well, there's 850 men there tonight. It's men only. Yeah. And it's packed. It's packed. And, you know, and then you can stay indefinitely. But the point being, and this is the big, what we've put so much energy into, and we've had some movement recently, uh, you know, let's downsize this insane shelter system and put people into housing because, you know, at the end of the day, they want what you and I want, Alec. They want a door that locks and they want that oasis where they can go and rebuild themselves. And how do we do that? Well, it, there's a great model, supportive housing model, housing with on-site support services, or you can do it in a sort of scattered site model where you can rent housing on the private market and go and provide services. Um, so my husband, John, actually worked for one of the pioneers that started that model. And you just see... So you go to work and you provide services for who? 
Are you talking about the coalition or I mean, these me, people me, that— Meaning if I'm a homeless person mm-hmm. and I'm in a shelter by right. the old Bellevue mm-hmm. and I want to get out of there and right. go to an apartment and I right. have no money, how do I do that? Well, up until recently, there was no way out unless you could earn a living wage, right? This was Bloomberg's plan, which obviously was no plan at all, which was you'd have to find your own way out. But now we do have a, a number of— uh, rental assistance programs, and there are some NYCHA or federal funds that are being put aside to help people get out. So it would depend on, and more recently, we got both the mayor separately and the governor to commit tens of thousands of units of housing with support services. So like we ran into a kid the other night who had an Italy shirt, you know, the Mario Batali, and he'd been woken up at three in the morning and his bed was given away to someone else. This poor kid, his dream was to be a chef and he was working as a, uh, you know, just clearing dishes at this place, Italy. And, uh, you know, we see so many young kids. You know, he would he used leave to, Italy where he had a job and go to a homeless shelter? Yeah, he, that's where he stayed. And, and he was getting completely screwed over. Fortunately, we were there. We were able to get him a different bed. But the point being that I just see so many of these young busboys, young guys with that glazed look in their eyes, like, how the hell did I wind up here or out on Ward's Island? So it really runs the gamut. There's a facility in Ward's Island? Yeah. There's, how many facilities are there in the five boroughs? Well, there are over 90 for single adults and then for the families, many more. But, Segregated, obviously, men and right. women. But I, I just wanted to make the point, like, either you're working or you have some psychiatric diagnosis. Maybe you're in denial. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're elderly. But all these things, now at least the de Blasio administration is cobbling together avenues so that you can get a flexible support system and get out, whether that's into a new apartment that's being newly constructed or through a— um, a rental assistance voucher. Now, let me let me ask you. I'm wondering why is it that even in less desirable neighborhoods in the city, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, on uh, 59th and Park, obviously, but uh, we're not building more facilities, but we're not building more homes. Mm-hmm for people to live in like this. Uh, And I'm wondering, to me, that always happens as a result of some political pressure. Why do you think that that doesn't happen? Well, I think it it is chalked up to political will. In other words, I I think that, you know, if you go back to to what worked, I think one of his deathbed conversions, politically speaking, with Ed Koch was his massive commitment to building— uh, low-income or middle-income housing. So he it's was setting, bad in the beginning. Oh, he was horrible. Right. Uh, fought us tooth and nail. Um, and, uh, you know, his even after Callahan was cemented, he opened up this drill floor up in Washington Heights with 1,200 men. Okay, that's what you want? We'll put the cots three feet apart. Like, point being that his deathbed conversion was he realized that he needed to, to do something, and he had a billion-dollar, 100,000-unit program, and he set aside 10% of the units for homeless families and individuals. And that combined with a subsequent agreement between Dinkins and, and Mario Cuomo, you start seeing the numbers diminish. And so it's clear what the solution is. It's housing, some form of housing. For the families, it's almost always an economic issue. For single adults, you have a much higher preponderance of substance abuse or mental health issues. But the point is, it's far cheaper than congregate shelters. And going back to your question, so why don't we have more of it? I think that it is that political will. And you see that sort of dueling now between uh, Andrew Cuomo and and, uh, Bill de Blasio, uh, you know, Maybe they can get together on the same page and get 
some traction and get more housing What do you think built. is the issue between them? Uh, I think that, you know, Bill de Blasio used to work for Andrew directly. He was Andrew's uh, regional rep here in New York City. I don't know if um, if it's just he's stunned that this guy is the mayor. I don't I don't know, but it's it's so visceral. And then you see it impacting people that have absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but also, but it's, it's not Andrew's nature to impulsively collaborate with people. <laughs> well, you can say that. Yeah, no, um, I'm going to say that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So trying to encourage them both, but I was stunned. I was actually in your neighborhood earlier today. And it's sort of gone back, you know, with that Bullmore building. Yes. The best deli. Remember the best sandwich, breakfast sandwich place? I was stunned a month ago when that was gone, and now they ripped down the whole. If you walk by that block, it's going to be a twenty-three story apartment building. <sighs> yeah. So I live north of you, and the same thing on my street corner. Um, you just you see it eating into the old New York. Why I assume you came here, right, to have that that vibrancy. More from Mary Brosnahan on our changing city coming up. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I'm talking with Mary Brosnahan, President and Chief Executive of the Coalition for the Homeless. Mary's late husband, John Sullivan, also spent years in the trenches fighting homelessness in New York City. At the end of last year, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the city will fund the creation of 15,000 units of supportive housing over 15 years. This should go a long way in helping with the city's homeless crisis, but Brosnahan says more funding is needed, and now. Tonight, there are 60,000 people in the municipal shelter system. Well over two-thirds are families with young kids. There are almost 25,000 kids in the shelter system. So, of course, our, as we run the gauntlet in the city, these are the poor folks that we see. So they go to special shelters which allow children. It's it's like families, moms with kids. Yes, And, and it's almost always economic forces you know, coupled with, unfortunately, DV and other things. But it's primarily they can't they can't make a go of it on their own. But then we have the street homeless. Um, and, yeah, it's super unpleasant. And I, I just remember when, when John was working at a place called Pathways to Housing, and they would engage people on the street and bring them directly into housing. And there was a nurse up in the 80s who was living on that median strip on Broadway. Mm-hmm. The Broadway malls. And she, and she was living in a little pup tent. And, um, you know, John had worked with her sister. It turned out that she had had a psych, you know, psychotic break when she was in her 20s. Long story short, he finally convinced her, right? Because first they think it's some sort of scam, like, yeah, you're going to give me my apartment right away. So he brings her, he shows her the apartment, convinces her to stay. And then he gets ready to leave, and he said, can I get you anything? And she said, yeah, I need a tent. And he went out and got her a tent and set it up. And you know what? Three weeks later, having visited her every day, and she started taking her medication, the tent came down. Mm. So no matter how... Uh, extreme the situation, there are solutions. And I think that the coalition is all about getting people to invest in those solutions. Do you believe that people who want to live in New York should be able to stay in New York? Or do we say to homeless people, you don't get to live where you want to live? Mm-hmm. Meaning, we'll give you a home, but that home is going to be up in Ossining. Mm-hmm. We, we've got a facility. We found a federal facility. We found an abandoned mm-hmm. college dormitory. We, we made a deal. We've mm-hmm. got a place for you to go. And you guys have to all get shipped up yeah. there. Well, what I, do you think about that well, idea? Well, it's a good point because actually part of the McKinney-Vento Act was that homeless groups would have first access to these decommissioned military bases. And, you know, it's sort of you have to be careful what you wish for, because uh, when you put people there and isolate them so they don't have any access to transportation or jobs or that kind of thing, you're creating a whole different series of problems for them. Most of the people that you see on the streets here in New York, the vast, vast majority grew up in New York. And so they're sort of clinging to what they know. Um, We say at the coalition, if people come to us and they have relatives and have a situation that they can go to, we'll help them get there, of course. We're not in business to say everybody has a right to live, quote unquote, in New York. I do think that the coalition is different, that it's less of a charity than a 
than a human rights group. I mean, we do believe that housing is a human right. You know, I, you know, and it sort of cuts both ways if you want to talk about the scripture and, you know, Jesus saying that the poor will always be with us. Yes, they will be with us. I've reconciled myself to that. But that doesn't mean that they have to live in squalor on university place and and just die a slow death like that. Like, I think that housing provides such a dignity for people and transforms their lives. Do those people ever get taken off the streets of their laws in the city in which the city literally plucks them off the streets and puts them in a facility because they're so compromised health-wise and they're just so foul in terms of their hygiene? Uh, yeah, well, one of the things that we're coming up against, and I don't know if you followed this horrible incident where this former teacher was almost beheaded by somebody else in a shelter here. I don't think they've caught the man who who did this heinous crime that, you know, and I've said this repeatedly to people on the state level, that we don't have enough state psychiatric beds. We don't have enough long-term psychiatric beds to help the people. Well, that and was it, a Pataki-era decision, correct? Well, yeah, and now it's, you know, they, they have it under this rubric of MRT, Medicaid redesign, and so on. But on the bottom line, on the front lines, we, we have our walk-in crisis services. And let me tell you, people, there's nothing more antagonizing or scary than these people going after my colleagues at the coalition, stalking them. And, you know, it doesn't seem to get through. I think that if you go back to Mario Cuomo's tenure, I think that people did hold him responsible for people with extreme psychiatric uh, disabilities on the street. But as we get further away temporally, I don't think people make that same causal connection with his with his son. And so, we're just interested in what works. And so at the end of the day, you know, 99.9% of these people, it's about housing slash housing and support services. But there is that 0.1% that need to be reinstitutionalized. And I think that that's something that, for whatever reason, the folks in Albany don't want to deal with. Because my recollection of this issue uh, during the real uh, wave of this was under Pataki, where he wanted to close those facilities and put everybody on the pharmaceutical leash. Right. And, uh, we, you know, give them drugs and just get them zapped out of their mind. We don't need staffs and therapists and security guards and uh, parking attendants and all the infrastructure of a, of a state-run facility. And they shuttered these facilities. Right. And, um, uh, but what happened to <clears throat> your, your my relative? Cousin, my yeah. cousin, she was a Pilgrim State, and she died a, a, a few years ago. And uh, but I always remember that that they they took her. Uh, this is somebody I was very close to when mm-hmm. I was a kid, and they took her, and she. Um, it just all became never about, the same. Yeah, it was, it was it was like a it was like a lobotomy in a pill. You know, I mean, they just wanted to almost lobotomize them. But, but I, can I do that? it's so please. fascinating because I think once you. If you can, you know, get away from the rhetoric and the, you know, I almost everyone I speak to has someone in their family or their immediate orbit. You know, I have a brother who, um, you know, committed suicide when he was young, just severe, severe depression that went untreated. And, you know, I think that anybody listening to this, they know somebody, these these tragic stories and the, the weight that it or the toll that it takes on, on families because you just, like you said, you knew this girl when she was... When she was young, right? You know, and my, it's good. No, go ahead. No, it's just like uh, you know, you know what a difference. I believe I never met your cousin. What a difference it would have made for somebody to caring to be on site, 
who would see her maybe go off her meds and intervene and have a have a, an apartment waiting for her when she comes back out, you know, to show her a different way to make it possible for her to have a different outcome. Well, as my friend once said, who had a severe uh, a prescriptive pill addiction problem, he was completely incapacitated by that addiction for many years. And then he went into recovery uh, when he was, you know, in his 40s, let's say, or late 30s. He said, uh, he said, I took those pills because I didn't want to care about my problems in my life anymore. Mm. He said, and when I got sober, I decided that I wanted to care again, mm. that I needed to care again. And that's mm -hmm. what I found was with my cousin, mm -hmm. was that those that, that pharmaceutical leash kind of thing, what it only does is help you not to care. Mm. She sat on the couch. She watched TV. She chain-smoked cigarettes all day and ate you know, big bags of Doritos, and she blew up, and she was unhealthy, and she died. Mm. And I think to myself, that that's really—I don't think that's what the system intended. Mm -hmm. but, um, but it does want people just to disappear, and they can either disappear— in a good way that they're, you know, put into supportive housing or they just disappear and wind up dead one day. Well, one of the things that I learned from you, I've learned a lot of things from you, but one of the things I learned from you was this idea that there are people that are hanging on to the housing they have by a fingernail. And as long as they mm -hmm. can stay in the housing they have, there's hope for them. Mm -hmm. I don't know why the city can't bring the real estate industry mm -hmm. to heal, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. knowing that it's in everyone's interest to have low-cost housing is something that benefits all of us. And I don't know why no mayor has been able to get the real estate business to uh, to see to see it to some degree, or have they, to your knowledge? Well, I, I was in a, a meeting recently with Bill Rudin, who's, you know, I want to talk about one of the leaders in, in real estate. And You think he gets he it? He gets it. He sure gets it. I'm sure Bruce Ratner gets it. There's there's people who are smart. I remember when I first started at the coalition, and uh, Dave Dinkins had this great housing commissioner, Felice Machete. It was this little, you know, fire hydrant bulldog of a woman, and she, you know, was helping us redevelop this housing that was given to us because these slumlords were trying to terrorize the tenants. And, you know, she, we talked about the voucher program. And there were places like East New York or Bed-Stuy that I was afraid to go to in the light of day. And um, she said, Mary, one of these fucking days, you're going to reach the end of your rope and you're not going to be able to do this anymore. And I feel like now we're on the, we're sort of on the cusp of that where you're not going to be able to voucher the problem away. It really is about bricks and mortar. The problem you brought up, uh, you know, the rent stabilization is that we're just hemorrhaging units. We lost 300,000 units of rent-stabilized apartments. You do have the, a lot of the commercial landlords or the, the residential landlords trying to make a greater profit. Um, and, no, I understand and, what they want. I'm just wondering yeah. why. Well, it's, it's all— in, Did downstate legislators vote for that as well? No, they Obviously. didn't. I think that it, you know, it gets into the, the intricacies of these swing Democrats, these five— There's a Mason-Dixon line here in New York, quite frankly. Yeah, but there's also—I'm <laughs> sorry, excuse my language—these five assholes who call themselves Democrats, but then they swing over and vote with the Republicans. And then, you know, you, you, you see how much uh, of influence the governor is willing to exert to, uh, you know, make it so that— this can't continue on. We can't continue on down this line. What has been the toll on you? Does it ever get you down? Yeah, I, you know, I, I am fortunate that I am able to spend time with homeless people. And you just meet the most incredible. I spent time with this young family two nights ago. 
and you just see the grace under under pressure. I think more, and this is a whole different conversation, you know, after John died, I didn't expect— Your it, husband. Yeah, I didn't expect it to take so long to— recover that sort of hope. You sort of hang in there because I, I have a great son, Quinn, who just turned 13. And, you know, you, you have to hold it together, you know. Um, but you, you do see that sort of, um, uh, you know, that was that was four years ago and it takes a long time. And I, I don't even I'm not being very articulate, but was John involved in the work you were doing? Well, he, he for many years did this housing homeless people, bringing them right in off the street. And then at the end of his life became a interventionist. And so had, had some crazy encounters with very wealthy people doing interventions to grab people and get them into recovery. Would, would, it, be, would it be fair to ask, do you think the, the work took a toll on John? Oh, there's no doubt. Because he was, he was at the high level where he was flying from city to city with incredibly wealthy people engaging him to go into insane, you know, uh, people uh, barricaded in um, townhouses with guns and bags of pill, like just insane stuff. Um, you know, I, I think that people often think like the work either he did or I did is without any type of, I don't know about drama, but it's fascinating in its own right. I mean, the stuff that you encounter, um, certainly more with, with the stuff he dealt with at, at, towards the end of his life. But um, I don't know. I guess I'm just saying that, you know, uh, yeah, it takes its toll. I, I, the thing that keeps you going are both the homeless people. We just have the most incredible staff. You know, I, so it you're part of a band of people you yeah, feel very— Yeah, and it's, it is not, it's not like dour. I think we have some of the funniest, smartest people, right? you gotta, you, you got to have the wit, you, to, yeah. you know? You have to I, find I mean, a way to— uh, You know, like, like even my friend and colleague Tim Campbell, there's a homeless woman, elderly woman, who just would say the most outrageous thing. This poor guy was a former, um, you know, Jesuit, and she would just say the most outlandish out of nowhere. Um, it's kind of hilarious. Uh, right. Not that she's housed, of course. But the point being um, that it's such a vibrant place. And people are all there because they want us to go out of business. We all want to go out of business, right? right? That's the difference. Right. Like, let's solve this problem and go out of business. Nobody else wants to work on the front lines of the coalition other than the ones that buy into the larger, uh, you know, uh, viewpoint that this is solvable. Of course it's solvable. Whether de Blasio gets another term uh, uh, coming up uh, next year, I guess it mm -hmm. is, right? Mm -hmm. Whether he gets another term or not, what do you think is name two? We can go on and on. Name two things that you think are doable and budgetable. Mm -hmm. Did I just make up that word? And budgetable, affordable, and, and politically uh, uh, realistic mm -hmm. that you'd like to see the city do right away. Well, one thing that has to happen in short order is the governor and the mayor need to come together. Now they've made separate commitments and they have to do another what is called a New York, New York agreement so this housing can get built. They've separately said that they're, they're going to commit to 15,000 units, a total of 30,000 units. But the only way that that's going to get built is if there is this alignment between the two of them so that people know who's going to do the capital, who's going to do the, the actual uh, service dollars. That has to happen in short order. Um, the other thing is we need to downsize the shelter system. I mean, people say again and again, why can't we make it it's safer? You know what? It's it's so much easier just to cut to the chase and get people up and out of the system and shrink the system 
get people into housing. Um, and Divert work, that money elsewhere. Yeah. Or, or invest it elsewhere, and then we'll reap the benefits on the back end. Right. Well, I want to say that um, and this, is a, this is an odd thing, but I want to be honest, and that is I think a lot of people walk through the city and they see the homeless versus panhandlers. Mm-hmm. There's a man that sits on a bucket out in front of a deli on my block, and he's there every morning. Yep. And he wants money. He's got fresh clothes on. Wherever he lives, he's got a home. Mm -hmm. Then there are the homeless. Then there are the homeless. Then there are people who have fallen through uh, this crevice and their lives are just... And you tell me, it's unspeakable, and, you, right? and you tell me this kid is bussing tables at Italy and going to a shelter, and had his bed taken away at three in the morning. And you, you, you tell me this, and I think to myself, I, I'm going to be in a restaurant one day, looking at a kid and going, who's clearing my table Does, and going, "Do you have a home yeah. to live in? Do you, are you living in a shelter?" You know, I, I run into these kids, and I say, "They're kids. They remind me of of my younger brothers." Or, you know, in a few years, that'll be Quinn. Is somebody going to give give that, those kids the help they need? Mary Brosnahan, President and Chief Executive of the Coalition for the Homeless. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.